Before I was a pastor, for a short time I worked in IT in central London. And uh, I remember the job interview for that job like it was yesterday. I was so nervous. I'd never been to a job interview before. And uh, I rocked up at this place. I was a bit early, so I just walked up and down the street outside to try and pass the time until the, you know, I checked my watch. On the very moment, I just pressed the buzzer and this voice came through the intercom, and I said who I was, and then the voice said, enter, like that, I was like, oh my goodness, just even more terrified now, and I walked up the stairs inside this building, and when I got to the top, there was a lady there who was the most terrifying, intense, fearsome lady I'd ever seen in my entire life, she looked like a Viking warrior, she was kind of ageless, so she could have been 25 or 75, I've got no idea, uh, and I, I just had the sense that she might crush me with a stare. You know, she was just so intense. And uh, after I'd been working there for a few days, I realized that I wasn't the only person who was terrified of, we'll call her Joan, uh, name changed to protect the innocent. Um, but in, in fact, the entire company was terrified of Joan. And, and it didn't matter what your... Uh, salary level was. It didn't matter how many people reported to you. It didn't matter uh, what your job title was. You were just terrified of Joan. And Joan ruled the roost. And she owned us. Uh, You know, she was a little bit like a cross between part doctor's receptionist, no offense intended for anyone who's a doctor's receptionist, part lion tamer, part boarding school head teacher, part sergeant major. She made Margaret Thatcher look like Minnie Mouse. And We were all just uh, terrified of her. And then one Christmas, we had the staff Christmas party, and we went to this bar in central London, and in the corner of the bar, there was a karaoke machine. And you could see immediately that that Joan had clocked this karaoke machine. And people were saying, oh, you should have a go, Joan. And she was saying, oh, no, no, I couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly. And you knew, actually, that was all she wanted to do. And eventually, after a few other people had had a fairly mediocre attempt at doing karaoke, Joan took to the microphone, and she came alive. It was like her eyes were twinkling, she was laughing, she was flicking back her hair, she was singing like the Monkees and Diana Ross and Burt Bacharach, and it was just the most amazing thing. It was like all this time we thought we'd known who Joan was. And now, finally, after all this time, we discovered the real Joan. Now, I'm realizing as I'm saying this that in my study when I wrote this, this link seemed like a really great idea and now not so much. But um, I don't know about you. I really want to know the real Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I really want to know the real Jesus. The, I want to know Jesus intimately, personally, just really profoundly, deeply in my life. And I, I think what I've discovered over the last few months, which seems ridiculous considering I've been a Christian for 25 years, is that if I don't make the pursuit of Jesus the main pursuit of my life, it won't be the main pursuit of my life. And in a sense, the passage that we're about to look at this morning is a moment of intimacy, Jesus and his disciples, his closest friends. And the cross is in view, 
And this is a moment where Jesus reveals, he discloses in a way that he hasn't previously in the whole of Mark's gospel. He reveals, this is who I really am, not who other people are expecting me to be. This is the real me. And uh, so we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 14. And so if you've got a Bible with you, you might want to turn to that or swipe to it or uh, tap to it or whatever. Um, Just to explain, by the way, uh, we started Mark's Gospel in the beginning of September 2017. And so if you're visiting, that maybe tells you about the kind of church we are. We've just been working our way through Mark's Gospel. At a particular point, we realized that we were going to hit the crucifixion at Christmas. And so we pressed pause on it and we did Ephesians for a little while. And that was just a sweet time, wasn't it? And now we're going to be walking with Jesus all the way to the cross. And then we're going to hit the resurrection on Easter Sunday. So it's almost like somebody planned that, isn't it? Uh, I planned that, actually, come to think of it. Um, So Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And we're going to be baptizing people at every site on Easter Sunday. And I'd really encourage you, if you haven't been baptized before, um, maybe this is the moment. So we're going to, just for the sake of time, we'll just cut into verse 16. It says this, The disciples left, went into the city, And found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it's written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I won't drink from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I love, I I just love, this this isn't in my notes, but I love the thought of Jesus and his disciples worshiping together, just singing together. So sweet, isn't it? I can't imagine ever being part of a church that doesn't do singing. Anyway, So what we're finding is that Jesus, and we're kind of finding it just before we left Mark's gospel before Christmas, is that uh, the style, the nature of Jesus' teaching and his strategy is shifting from this point. In fact, from kind of uh, chapter 10, really. So for the first 10 chapters of Mark's gospel, um, as he goes about, he's... he's, um, He seems to be wanting to keep his identity shrouded in a kind of a mystery. Uh, The theologians call it the messianic secret. So everywhere he goes, he's like being slightly obtuse or slightly um, uh, mysterious about who he is. So for example, in Mark chapter 1, he heals a leper. And then once he's healed that leper, he says, don't tell anyone. Which is a slightly strange, it's like surprising um, in Mark chapter 4, he, he says, I'm teaching in parables so that the mystery, uh, the secrets of the kingdom 
will be kept under wraps, essentially. Uh, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because we always think, or we often think of parables as being like Jesus' illustrations, like, oh, you don't really understand this, so I'll tell you a story that will make things clearer. But actually, that is not at all the intention of the parables. It's to keep things more mysterious. And then in Mark chapter 8, you have the kind of hinge point of Mark's gospel where uh, so, uh, Jesus says to Simon Peter, and who do you say I am? And, and uh, Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And again, it says, uh, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So uh, for the first t- eight to ten chapters, it's like, I want to keep this all a mystery. Why does he do that? Well, it seems like he's doing that because he wants to be, he's masterminding events. And he wants to be in control of what's happening. Uh, by this point, God's people, the Jews, have been um, oppressed for four or five centuries by different groups of people, and latterly it's the Romans. And the Romans are uh, keeping them occupied, uh, and uh, they're not free. And they've been longing for a moment when the Messiah, the Christ, the coming king would come, and they're expecting it to be a bloody and violent revolution. They're expecting this king to come along and say, right, follow me, everyone. We're going to kick these Romans out of our land. That's what they're expecting. And Jesus doesn't want to be made the king on their terms. He's very concerned that if they immediately catch on to the fact that he's the Messiah, he's going to be made the leader of a a violent revolution, and he doesn't want that. And so for the first eight to ten chapters, he says, don't tell anyone. You've realized now who I am. Don't tell anyone else. But from Mark chapter 11, everything changes. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. People are laying down palm branches and they're laying down coats in front of him and they're saying blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord they realize or their 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 um, their lips are declaring that he is the Christ he is the Messiah he is the coming king and so from Mark chapter 11 his strategy changes and from this point on he's saying yes I am the king but let me tell you what kind of king I am and so it's all, it's very self-disclosing. There's lots of like, let me tell you, that. just put aside your expectation of violence. I'm a different kind of king. And so that is the context of this passage. And in a sense, the Last Supper is like a royal banquet. And, and he's there laying out his uh, vision for his kingship. And every moment of the meal, it's a little bit like, in some ways, never mind the Last Supper, you could call it the Last Parable. In some senses, it's, it's like the, the very last moment where he's going to lay out for his disciples the nature of his kingship. Every single moment, every enact, kind of every act, every word is a little part of an explanation of what his kingship is really all about. And so for a first century Jew in that room, this is like mind-blowing. And I think what you see from this point on is the disciples, some of them it takes till after the resurrection when they're with Jesus and he explains to them what he was meaning. But you see them starting to understand this is something very different from what we'd come to expect. So the question this morning is, what is he teaching them with this last parable? Uh, What is the nature of his kingship? And the first thing that we learn is that he's a king who rescues. He's a king who rescues. When does this last supper occur. It happens, says Mark, at the Passover. It's during the Passover. And Mark is so desperate for us to understand that. He tells us four different times in this chapter. So verse 12, 
on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. What, what's the festival of unleavened bread? It's another name for the Passover. And then it says, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And then it says, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And then in verse 16, which we read out, it says, the disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. So Mark's telling us, it's the Passover, everyone. Have you got this? It's the Passover. It's very significant. And in fact, the writers of the New Testament, when they started to understand what what the cross was really all about, one of the first ideas that they had was, this is... Jesus is the Passover lamb. So you see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus is the Passover lamb. The Passover was one of three different of the main festivals, the main feasts in the Jewish calendar. So there were lots of other kind of minor festivals and feasts that you could celebrate at home. But these three, really everyone who uh, called themselves a Jew would descend on Jerusalem. Uh, for these three different festivals. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also known as the Passover, is the first one. The second one is the Feast of Weeks, also known as the Feast of the Harvest, or the First Fruits, also known as the Feast of Pentecost, because it's exactly 50 days after the Feast of Passover. And then the third one is the Feast of Tabernacles. And so everyone who's Jewish in these three moments descends on the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem... uh, population, a few tens of thousands, suddenly grows to, scholars say, something like 180,000 people within the walls. Um, The Jewish writer Josephus, who was writing at the time, he says three million people, but I think he was just an introvert and it just felt like three million people. Uh, It's just really, really busy in town and everyone's come there. And on the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of Passover, they've come here to do three things specifically. They've come here to sacrifice a lamb for their family in the temple and then to eat that lamb. They've come to break unleavened bread and they've come to drink wine. And in fact, during the Passover uh, feast, the Passover meal, there are four different cups of wine that they drink together. And Jesus sits down. I love the drama of this moment. So there are like thousands of lambs being sacrificed on behalf and eaten, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And Jesus is sitting in one room where every single other room in the entire city is packed. And he sits with his disciples and he breaks unleavened bread and he drinks wine. And there's no mention of a lamb. Until he explains to them that his blood will be shed. He's going to be the Passover lamb. And the Passover is a celebration of rescue. That's primarily what this thing is. Once a year, they gather together to celebrate the rescue. And it's the the biggest rescue for the people of God of all time. It's the Exodus. So this is a moment when they celebrate that God looked down on his people who were... um, uh, kind of held captive in chains that they couldn't break for themselves in Egypt. And uh, he sees that they're held in absolute captivity and he reaches into Egypt. He breaks all of the chains and he rescues them. He takes them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and onto the mountain. And so this is like the greatest rescue of all time. And to be honest, I thought Passover 
was like a bit somber. Like I'd imagined it to be a somber event. But actually, as I was reading through some of the uh, kind of commentaries and, and books on this stuff, I discovered that far from being somber, it was a moment of intense joy. I had no idea. And so even in this really, really dusty old dry Bible dictionary, it suddenly leapt to life at this point. It said, the Passover was an expressive season of religious joy. By these feasts, man not only acknowledged God as his provider, but recorded the Lord's unbounded and free favor to a chosen people whom he delivered by personal intervention in this world. And the joy expressed was heartfelt. And so I love this idea that everyone is celebrating. It's like a riot in the city of Jerusalem. And they're all kind of saying to one another in their homes with their families, we're favored, we're chosen, we've been rescued and we're free. And while all the other rooms in the city are doing that, Jesus is sitting with his disciples. And what he's essentially saying is everything that they're celebrating points to me. And what you're about to witness is the greatest rescue in human history. And it's not a rescue from the slavery and captivity of the Egyptians or even of the Romans. It's the slavery and captivity of sin and shame. And he's going to rescue us, rescue us from it all. What's about to happen at the cross, Mark's telling us, is a rescue. It's a rescue. The rescue from the captivity of the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of God. He's a king who rescues. And that's why Mark's telling us over and over again, it's the Passover, it's the Passover, it's the Passover, it's the Passover. And of course, we've seen God rescue people over and over again in our church. You know, I'm just thinking about one guy who discovered drugs in his teens and in his mid-40s, God rescued him, turned his life around. Nothing else worked. God rescued him. And we've seen that again and again. And the truth is, if God can do that for him, he can do it for us. Whatever cycles or patterns of behavior or thinking that are unhelpful, whatever sense in which our shame is holding us captive, Jesus can perform a dramatic and remarkable rescue. That's the first thing. He's the king who rescues. The second thing that we learn in this parable is he's the king who restores. A very kind person looked after our children for a couple of days, um, a couple of weeks ago. And not only did they do that immense thing already, but then when they left, they left behind a bottle of Prosecco and two bars of incredible chocolate. And this probably tells you a really big difference between me and my wife, right? Because I see those things and I think, that's nice. That's tonight sorted out. Uh, but Taryn was like, no, 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 no. We are going to save the chocolate for another day. I mean, who does that? I mean, who? What kind of a fruitcake does that? Anyway, I love her, but it's just, we're just so different. It's almost like we're from different planets. She's like, let's just save it. Now, the truth is, that's a lovely idea. Not going to happen, is it? Because she could take that chocolate and she could, she has, written little post-it notes, put it on the chocolate, chuck, leave the chocolate alone. And that will kind of hold me, you know, within certain limits for a while. But sooner or later, my confession is that that's just not going to be enough. 
Or she could, she could conceivably, she could take that chocolate and she could just put it somewhere really, really high up, because I don't like heights at all. But ultimately, there isn't a ladder in the land that eventually is going to prevent me from eating that chocolate. Or she could get, like, um, you know those mouse traps? You know, snap! She, she, she could put those all around it. But sooner or later, I wouldn't mind losing a finger or two for the sake of eating that chocolate. And so nothing is going to restrain me from eating that chocolate. Why? Because I still love chocolate. The only way that she's going to prevent me from eating that chocolate is she'd have to reach into my soul and she'd have to perform surgery on my inclinations and my temptations so that I no longer feel drawn towards chocolate. And of course, she can't do that. But actually, Jesus is telling us that he can change the inclinations of our hearts. And I'm getting that from verse 24, where it says, as he's lifting up this cup of wine, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. And um, I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible, there's a tiny little letter next, in between the and covenant. It's a little letter D. And then if I follow that little letter D down to the bottom of the page, it says, some manuscripts, the new. So this is my blood of the new covenant. I think Matthew's gospel actually says, uh, you know, in the main text, the new covenant. The old covenant was the covenant given to Moses. And it was given to Moses on tablets of stone. And it basically uh, was designed to constrain people's behavior uh, in order that they would, uh, in their hearts, worship God. So in a sense, it's a covenant that works from the outside in. There's lots of, you shall not do this, you shall not do that, you shall not do that, you should do that. So there's lots of that kind of thing in the old covenant, is there? And you can read that in Leviticus. It's constraining behavior in order that somehow, amongst that constrained behavior, they would connect with God. But of course it didn't work. And uh, throughout the Old Testament you see God's people not only behaving really badly but ultimately turning their hearts away from God and towards other gods and other idols. And so God begins to promise that he's going to do a new covenant that will operate in a completely different way. And in particular God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 31, uh, there's a new kind of covenant coming. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their mind. And I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. So this new covenant is all about the heart. What God is promising is that he'll reach into our hearts and he'll write the law there. I wonder where I'm I'm on my notes. So again, what Jesus is doing is he's rejecting these military, violent, revolutionary ideas about kingship. And instead, what he's doing is he's taking these Old Testament images and he's applying them to kingship. He's saying, my kingship, uh, you can understand what it's like by looking at some of these images from the Old Testament. The Passover lamb, he's applying that to the messiahship. And then the next one is he's taking this new covenant. He's saying, I'm going to be a person who ushers in a whole new way of being. A whole new way of being a person of God. 
And it's a kingship that doesn't rule from the outside in. It works from the inside out. Not by imposing God's law from above, but by working in the depths of our hearts to restore our inclinations and our temptations so that we're reoriented towards the Lord as we were back in the beginning. And we so need that. I don't know about you, I really, I really need that. We need a new heart, a heart after God, a heart that's godly, a heart that wants the things that God wants. Have you ever behaved in a, in a moment in a way that horrifies you? I don't know, like that happens occasionally in my life where suddenly I think, oh my goodness, like, it's like someone's pressed a button and something horrible happens. Uh, often, I can imagine that that wouldn't be the case for anyone here, but sometimes you might lose it with your kids. I mean, nobody here would do that, but let's just say just suddenly, or, or, or somebody says something and you respond in a way that's just kind of vicious or whatever, and, and in that moment we find ourselves saying things like, I'm so sorry, I don't know what came over me, when really on the inside we're thinking, I don't know how that came out of me. The only way to deal with what comes out of us is to follow a king who's able to change the very inside of who we are, to restore us. He's a king who restores. Number three, he's a king who redeems. Are you loving the R's? I am. So, uh, it's my love language. I was in a group of uh, pastors this week, from pastors from all over Scotland, and uh, I said, oh, I love that kind of alliteration thing. That's my love language. And they all looked at me as if I was insane. But never mind. So everyone in the room, either in, in that moment or later on, is linking what Jesus is saying and doing with sections of the Old Testament. And uh, the next Old Testament image that he's drawing and, and, and attaching to his own kingship is the person of the suffering servant. So in the writings of the prophet Isaiah... Isaiah prophesies that a person will come who will lay down their lives for the sins of the whole world. Now, it was impossible, really, for, for first century Jews to kind of conceive of a king who dies because, uh, you know, it's just like it wasn't computing. But he's saying, you need to look really carefully at Isaiah. And so in Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says this, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And then it goes on in verse 12, and this language is really important. Verse 12 of Isaiah 53, it says, He poured out, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. He poured out his life for the sins of many. And here is Jesus, Mark 14, Last Supper, verse 24. This is my blood poured out for many. And he's saying, you've been expecting this leader of a violent revolution to come. But this isn't about triumph over the Romans. This is about the triumph over your own sin. And it's been here in the book all along. You just never saw it. At the heart of Jesus' kingship is forgiveness. 
He's a king who makes all things new. He's the king of the clean start. I am, um, my daughter is an artist. It's not like she wants to be an artist when she grows up. She's an artist. You know, every day she has to create something. And uh, um, sometimes she uses YouTube to help her. Often she just makes something up off the top of her head. And it's unbelievable what she creates. And she's got a section of our garage that is like cardboard tubes and cardboard boxes and tissue paper and glitter and glue and paint and all that. I mean, it's just chaos in there. Freaks me out. But she creates stuff in that place. And I can remember um, a while ago, she's doing this painting and uh, it's really, really great, but then she makes a mistake. Oh. So then she's like, it's okay, I'll paint over it. So she gets more paint over the paint that was there already and the, paint start, the paper's starting to get really soggy. And then she's like, oh no, that's still not right. She gets kitchen paper. She's like trying to wipe it off. Just makes everything look kind of messy and then the paper starts to disintegrate. And then she's oh, maybe I could stick something over it. So she cuts a square of paper. She's like trying to stick it on. But of course, by this point, it's just a mess. And she's like, dad, I've, I've tried everything. She's like, by this point, she's crying. I've tried everything. I've tried painting over it and I've tried like wiping it away and I've tried sticking over it and, and I just there's, uh, there's nothing, I, I've tried everything and I said to her, there is actually one thing that you haven't tried and I just took out a new piece of paper and I said why don't you just start again at the nature at the very heart of Jesus' kingship over us is forget, it's a new start every day, new start, new start, new start maybe that's a word for you today He's the king of the clean start. And the last one, he's the king who reunites. So having taken all these other Old Testament ideas and themes and applied them to his own kingship, the last thing that he seems to do is to take an idea that's woven all the way through the Old Testament and apply it to himself, and it's the word family. The Passover was, okay, so you all piled in like couple of hundred thousand people into the city walls of Jerusalem, but actually you were supposed to celebrate the Passover with who? With your family. And the way it worked was that the head of the household, you know, the oldest man in the household, would take you through the story of the Exodus whilst bringing out all these cups and breaking the bread. And as they did that, often the youngest person in the family would ask questions to kind of prompt the story to develop. So Jesus, who should Jesus have been with? He should have been with his family. He should have been with Mary and Joseph, I guess. I, if Joseph is still alive by this point, I guess he was the, you know, he should have been taking them through the Passover. Where should the disciples have been at this moment? The disciples should have been with their families. And maybe some of them should have been taking people through the Exodus story. So it's actually incredibly um, striking that Jesus sits as the head of the household with his disciples as a whole new kind of family. And in fact, we saw way, way back in Mark chapter 4 that Jesus' mother and brothers appear at the door when Jesus is teaching. And uh, he says, oh, your, your mom and your brothers are outside. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? He who does or whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and brothers and sisters. What we're doing right now, here and in Merns and in um, the other places, is family. 
I'll just finish with this. My um, twin brother and I used to do paper rounds when we were teenagers. And neither of us, it's fair to say, is a morning person. But he was way worse than I was at being a morning person. And the alarm would go off every morning and we would kind of, someone would press snooze a couple of times, but eventually we'd get up and go and do this paper round. And one time my brother said, I'm not going, tell him I'm not coming in. And then he did it again. And it became like a pattern of behavior that every other day he would send me in to share the bad news with the paper shop manager that, that he wasn't coming in. And who gets the wrath of the paper shop manager in that moment? It's me, isn't it? And so this was driving me absolutely crazy. Like every couple of days, I you know, go in and get shouted at. It's not my fault. And so one morning, my brother rolls over and he says, tell him I'm not coming in. And I saw out of the corner of my eye this, my guitar. And I went over to my guitar and I picked it up by the neck and I wielded it above my head like an axe. And then I slammed it down on his duvet-covered body, and the whole guitar just splintered into a thousand pieces. I'll tell you what he got up then. <laughs> My point is, sometimes your family drive you crazy, but you can choose your friends, you can't choose your family. What Jesus is wanting to build here and in all of our other sites and across our church is a family. He doesn't want to build an army. He wants to build a family. He doesn't want us to be soldiers. He wants us to be brothers and sisters. What a remarkable king we follow. Why don't we stand?